there's an almost endless debate over whether uh, art influences life or the other way around. I'm definitely in the camp that believes that it's a little bit of both. With that in mind, I think that the current trend, at least on the internet, of people deriding films for getting political is a bit silly just because of how intensely the world at large shapes and reflects how our art is made. Fewer films are harder to separate from the politics of the day as Fritz Lang's Metropolis. A lot of people have tried to do this, which we will be talking about later on when we talk about the film censorship. For the time being, uh, I'm just going to say that we are going to be going over this very important capital A art milestone in science fiction filmmaking and just sort of cutting apart this oft-analyzed film and trying to find something new to say about it. Uh, my name is Ryan. This is a real deep dive. And I'm Rachel, the perpetual co-host, because we are continuing to record episodes during the quarantine. <laughs> yes, uh, for your very first episode of this show, the first episode period, I thought it'd be fun to make you watch Citizen Kane because you'd never seen it before and to just get your fresh hot take from someone who has had it built up for you over your entire life. And you weren't too crazy about it. You thought it was all right. It was okay. I could understand why it was important, but also Citizen Kane himself is just, he's kind of an annoying character. <laughs> Sorry. I do like the idea of taking immortal celluloid classics and then doing a podcast with someone who had just seen them for the first time. Probably going to do Casablanca with Sarah. I'm uh, going to make Sylvan watch King Kong if I can wrangle that at some point. You have never seen Metropolis before, and I was under the impression that you would probably have a more favorable opinion of it than uh, Citizen Kane. Oh, yeah. I, I genuinely enjoyed myself. I've seen a lot of, you know, the capital A art, well, even not all of them were art, but generally pretty important silent films. Like I've seen Phantom of the Opera, Battleship Potemkin, Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, and Birth of a Nation. <laughs> yeah, you slogged through Birth of a Nation. That's yeah, something. You know, it, it was film class in college, and we all were like, Ugh. They didn't do Metropolis in your film class? No, we oh we watched From the Earth to the Moon by Melies instead. Well, that is a bit shorter. Yeah. <laughs> Another thing we'll be discussing uh, on this film's aftermath. Right, before we go any further, uh, I will uh, just go over the plot, mm -hmm. as I always do. The story is set in the Million Acre Metropolis, a stunningly futuristic city where wealthy industrialists rule from skyscrapers reaching towards the heavens. Yeah, it's set in uh, 2026, a year that we're going to blink and we'll suddenly be here. Uh, well, there has been a debate over when exactly the film takes place. Edits place it in various time periods. Some say it's the year 3000. Some say it's in a parallel universe. Some say it's a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Aha, well, I'm just No, they, they, they literally said that. Uh, Lucas lifted it from that. Oh, really? Okay, all right. I, yeah, I'm going to let you do the explaining because I know, like... <laughs> practically nothing about this movie. The only thing that I knew about it before watching this was that there was a lady robot, and that was it. If someone knows at least one thing about Metropolis, <laughs> is that there's a sexy robot lady in it. Yeah, who has robo-lady tits. <laughs> All right. Uh, anyways, the masses toil in dangerous dehumanizing drudgery in order to prop up the decadent lives of the privileged. The city is run by Joff Frederson, uh, or Friederson. He's the city's master. His son, who is named Frieder, whiles away his sheltered life in a pleasure garden. His cozy little uh, bubble bursts when a young woman from the slums named Maria brings an assortment of uh, worker children to witness the lifestyles of their rich brothers. Now, the first thought in my head was like, Damn, this man's joining the revolution just to get some good pussy. Yeah, Maria is quickly <laughs> ushered away, but Frieder, who is instantly entranced, follows her down to the lower levels, which he has never been to before. I mean, Maria is very ethereally beautiful. I mean, I'll talk more about how I viewed her character later, but she is very ethereal looking. Yeah, she definitely has that German expressionist, silent film actress style get down with the eyeliner and the and, and the wayfish looks and yeah, all that. It's making me realize that you know what, nobody actually has to see me. I wonder what happens if my eyebrows look bad. <laughs> Just draw them on for the next two weeks. 
Anyways, Freighter is horrified by the cruel conditions of the slums. Uh, he witnesses an explosion from an overworked grunt. Uh, the machines in Metropolis apparently need constant care and attention, or they will just explode and murder everybody. Oh my god, yeah. <laughs> and... While he is taken aback by the explosion, he hallucinates that the heart machine at the center of Metropolis is actually a temple of the canonite god Moloch, and that the workers are being fed to it in a very sacrificial manner. Yeah, that part was really creepy, especially that this one has color, quote-unquote, in it, so it's red. Yeah, Ali, uh, talking about the restoration that we watched in the particular little uh, things that were added to it that have angered some purists of the film. Frieder immediately runs home to tell his father of the, about the accident because he's under the impression that his dad is unaware of the struggles of the working class. <laughs> Poor, sweet, stupid baby. <laughs> and he is very disillusioned by his father's cold response. Uh, meanwhile, uh, Frederson is told about some maps that were found on the dead bodies of the workers and is immediately infuriated by this. However, Frieder is determined to help the workers, and he returns to the machine halls and trades places with an exhausted grunt. This is supposed to help the workers is beyond me. He did not think this through. This is going to be a motif with this character. Yeah, he, he's just very well-meaning. <laughs> he's doing his best, guys. Yeah, he's trying. Now, Frederson consults the mad scientist Rotwang, who is building a <laughs> robot. Yeah, well... You, you, you get, Sorry, you get your to... giggling at Rotwang out of your system now. Yeah, cause... okay, all right. Yeah, I have these sense of humor sometimes with 14-year-old boys. All right, you you, yeah, you, right, get, you get three more giggles right. at Rotwang, and that's it. All right, I'm done. I'm done. We'll <laughs> see. Anyways, Rotwang is building a robot to replace Hell, a woman he loved. This woman married uh, Friederson and had Frieder before she died, presumably in childbirth. Frederson asks Rotwang to consult the maps uh, in order to understand what they are. And doing so, they find that it's a map of the underground catacombs beneath Metropolis, and they stumble upon a clandestine meeting uh, of the workers. Maria, who is at the head of, of the procession, prophesizes that one day a mediator will soon appear who will bring the working and ruling classes together. She winds this around a heavily retconned uh, retelling of the Tower of Babel from the Bible. Yeah, except this time it's the workers who tip it over, stop production versus, you know, God. I mean, it's been a while since I've, you know, looked at the Old Testament, but it's God that stopped the Tower of Babel. Yes, I believe the story in the Old Testament is a parable about how the arrogance of man shouldn't come to the gates of God, and that God made us all speak different languages to keep us from working together and therefore overpowering him with our human ingenuity. Oh boy. Yeah, but Maria's version of the story is that the people who were building the tower ignored the plight of the thousands of workers that they conscripted to build it, and the workers rose up and tore down the tower, and that's just bad news for everybody. So, you know, treat your workers nice. Yeah, we have the power. <laughs> Frieder believes that he could fill the mediator role, and he proclaims as such while declaring his love for Maria, which is not evident in the version that we watched. I mean, I kind of got it. I mean, I kind of, or maybe I could just guess that, you know, yes, this is where the story is going. And I also just assumed that, you know, it's a silent movie, the love stories usually aren't that meaty. Yeah, well, we'll be talking about how the inner titles are changed in various edits of this film. After witnessing the meeting, Friederson orders Rotwang to give the robot Maria's likeness so he could manipulate the workers through the robot. Uh, Rotwang, he is looking to kill Friederson and take over Metropolis, another thing that is not mentioned in the particular edit I we mean, saw. I, I was kind of like, wow, he really gets along pretty well with the guy who stole his girlfriend. Rotwang kidnaps Maria and then transfers her appearance to the robot. He then sends the robot to Friederson, who uh, embraces her because his evil scheme is coming together. Frieder stumbles upon this embrace and thinking that the robot is Maria, falls into a hallucinatory delirium. Meanwhile, the robot provokes riots in Metropolis and stirs dissent amongst the workers just through her wanton acts of burlesque carnality. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that, uh, what's the name of the actress who plays the Marias? Uh, she did a really good job. The name is, uh, Bridget Helm. Okay, well, she did a really good job differentiating between the two characters because Robot Maria, she, 
She wears way more makeup. She moves differently. She's sexy. She's not the, you know, innocent, you know, rebel leader anymore. She's here to cause trouble on purpose. Yeah, just a, just a little belly dance thing. It's, it's almost hypnotic. Yeah, I was like, wow, this is pretty racy for the 20s. I mean, then again, it's also Europe. We're not all, you know, stifled Americans. Well, I mean, pre-code films are often shockingly advanced. After Frida recovers, he discovers that the robot is urging the workers to destroy the heart machine at the center of a, a metropolis. He instantly accuses the robot of being an imposter, but the workers uh, don't believe him, and he barely escapes with his life. The workers then uh, abandon their children in order to smash the machines. The heart machine is destroyed, and this unleashes a flood in the workers' quarters. The real Maria overpowers Rotwang and escapes from his lab, just in time to help Frieder rescue the children. Meanwhile, under the impression their actions have drowned their own kids, uh, the workers capture the robot and burn her at the stake. Frieder stumbles upon this because, you know, he'd been separated from Maria and initially assumes that the robot is Maria until her likeness appears in the flames. Yeah, I was like, the robot is cackling. I mean, does she think that fire is not going to, you know, at least damage her? My read was that the robot didn't care if she lived or died. I can see that, too. Anyways, uh, after waking up, Rotwang, now believing that the real Maria is hell, chases her to the roof of the cathedral. Frieder notices her and leaps up to battle Rotwang as the workers look on. Rotwang falls to his death in the scuffle. Uh, Frieder, now identified as the prophesized mediator, is anointed the heart that will arbitrate between the hand, the workers, and the head, who is Friederson. And that is how the film closes. Yay! It was very pretty, or at least the version that I watched. We watched the, what was it, 1984, you said? We watched the 1984 edit. Yeah, I liked it. But then again, I also don't have anything to compare it to, so you're getting you know, the raw unfiltered response <laughs> that's why you're here yeah. and also you're the only person that could be on this show right now yeah <laughs> anyways the story of the film was inspired by a 1924 trip to new york city that fritz lang undertook the new york skyline astonished lang who was an architect before he became a filmmaker and him being an architect makes a lot of sense when oh you look yeah at this film. it really does now, Lang had his wife, Thea von Harbo, write a novel with the assumption that they would later adapt it into a film. It was derived largely from the work of H.G. Uh, Wells and also a little bit of Mary Shelley. I believe uh, that. Yeah, uh, however, the book has more supernatural elements. These are only touched upon in the film, uh, most notably the pentagram that appears in the background of Rotwang's lab for some reason. I just figured that I was there just to be like, he's spooky. Ooh. Yeah, that's basically it. <laughs> This film was produced by UFA, which was the state-run German film production company. Mm-hmm. They essentially had a monopoly after World War One uh, because the government had taken over every film studio for propaganda purposes. And while every other film studio in Europe was destroyed by the war, UFA had actually grown a little bit. And for a while, they were the only film studio in the world that could compete with Hollywood. Mm. The film had a proposed budget of 1.5 million marks, but it wound up costing a little over 5 million. Uh, it just kept ballooning. It, that's the equivalent of about 16 million in modern American dollars. Okay, I was about to ask about that because it was like, this is, you know, the inflation time, right? <laughs> yeah, it was the most expensive film ever made at the time. And it, de- yeah, it definitely looks like it. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's gorgeous. It was produced over 310 shooting days over the, over the ten of se- course of 17 months. The flood sequence alone took three weeks. The children were plucked from very poor neighborhoods, presumably because, you know, they won't complain about Cheap getting paid. labor, pay- I'm guessing? Yeah, about getting paid peanuts to uh, subject themselves to the water. Uh, Lang insisted upon freezing cold water because he wanted the actors' reactions to be natural. And it's kind of a dick move, but... Oh, we'll be getting into more of his dick moves. Okay. Yeah, supposedly there were 37,000 extras in the film. I kind of doubt that. Yeah, Lang later claimed that there were only about 300. That sounds more accurate. Yeah, and the studio just claimed that there were 37,000 in order to, like, you know, hype up the film and make it seem larger than life. But yeah, those 300 people were used very well. The the film seems to be swarming with with thousands. Especially the scenes where the workers are, you know, changing the shifts, marching in and out in perfect sync. 
as I was implying before with the kids, uh, there were no stunt doubles or stand-ins in any of the scenes. Lang wanted natural reactions, genuine fear, genuine exhaustion, genuine terror from everyone, lead actors and minor background extras. <laughs> Who were also minors. Yes. <laughs> and he insisted on retake after retake after retake until his actors collapsed from exhaustion. Wow, he kind of sounds like someone whose name rhymes with Canley Subarek. Not to mention the antagonist of the film itself. <laughs> All right, let's keep going. As mentioned before, uh, the first thing that anyone notices about this film are the special effects and just how beautiful it is. Crane cameras were a new technology, and some of them were developed explicitly for the use in this film. I saw lots of still photographs of what they called the flying camera, which is a camera they tied to the harness in order to get those big swooping overhead shots, mm -hmm. which were not really used in films yet. Uh, a lot of films at the time still had those, let's park a tripod in front of a play and just leave. Yeah. Yeah. I can see that. <laughs> yeah, a lot of the visual effects were uh, created by, uh, I am going to butcher every German name, Ugan Schuftan, I believe that. I, I believe no, I'm not doing too bad. Right. Yeah, it, it sounds right. <laughs> Unless a German person's listening to this. Yeah. He is known for the Schuftan process, where matte paintings and miniature set pieces were projected off mirrors uh, behind the actors to give the illusion that the actors were occupying that space. This was used by Alfred Hitchcock two years later in Blackmail and uh, a lot of films since. It was made obsolete by green screen technology, but it, it was used by directors and low-budget films and uh, that didn't really have uh, the budget for green screen or the availability of it. First thing that came to mind was the Mario Bava film, Planet of the Vampires, but also Francis Ford Coppola's Dracula film makes use of this technology. During what scene? Lots of the opening credits were things were transposed onto backgrounds and such. All right, that makes sense. I was thinking my guess would have been some of the castles. Yeah, some of the castle scenes as well. It, it, it's pretty invisibly done, but that's for another podcast. <laughs> oh, another thing that leaps out is the use of double exposure uh, effects in Metropolis. It's hardly the first one to do it. George Melies uh, used uh, double exposure. But this one is a bit different in that uh, the double exposures were often used to symbolize the fragile emotional state of characters in the story, particularly during the hallucinatory scenes. Yeah. And uh, that ties into how German expressionism affected how filmmaking was done in Germany and in uh, American films afterwards, which I will be digging into more detail a bit uh, later on. But now it's time to talk about the robot, which, as we said before, if you know at least one thing about Metropolis, it's the robot. Yeah, I, I mean, I knew she was going to be important, but I thought the story was going to be about the robot, like, experiencing life. Uh, I will be talking about that uh, when we get to the film's legacy. Oh, okay. And, uh, yeah, there are versions of Metropolis that are from the robot's perspective. The robot was built by Walter Schulz Mittendorf, who also built a lot of the miniatures and uh, the skyscrapers and, you know, the ones that, you know, weren't matte paintings. Mm -hmm. He first did a full body cast of Bridget Helm, and he coated it with this plastic wood filler, which he stumbled upon by chance. It was able to give the costume a metallic appearance while still allowing some amount of mobility. Yeah, she doesn't really move very much, does she? It is a clunky, awkward costume, and Helm, because she spent hours and hours in it, suffered a lot of cuts and bruises from uh, the few scenes that she was in it. Ooh, yeah, I, I believe that. And we're getting to the set design, all those gorgeous buildings and all those vast vistas of hustle and bustle. The first thing that comes to mind is the Art Deco effects, and I, I love Art Deco, just in design and architecture, and I was just at hog heaven looking at all the frames in the film. Yeah, I was like, ooh, it's so pretty. Uh, yeah, the second most important factor in the film's uh, architectural aesthetic would probably be uh, Italian Futurism, which was an art movement that was basically parallel to Expressionism. As I said, it happened in Italy while Expressionism was going on in Germany. And that was mostly the idea of depicting a modern world, where a post-industrial world, where everything is moving. There's automated cars and automated factories, and everything's mechanical, and everything's go, go, go. And uh, yeah, there's a lot of that in there, uh, going on. Yeah, I had heard of that, and you mentioned it now, but that's... There is an old-school element to the film. There's a lot of gothic imagery. The final showdown happens in a cathedral. 
Yeah, not to mention uh, Maria's prophecy happens in front of a very, like, ornate assortment of crucifixes. Yeah, it's having some Jesus metaphors. Frieder's hallucination involves the personification of the seven deadly sins coming out. I thought that part was so cool. It also um, reminded me of there's this end, uh, the end scene of Don Giovanni, where you know he gets dragged off the Alp, or he gets dragged off to hell, and there was a production of it where all the statues are people painted to blend into the background. So when they reach around to grab them, they all start moving. And it's really creepy. And I love how, you know, moving statues, them moving on their own in Metropolis. The silent era was still the the salad days of filmmaking in general. And German expressionism was one of the first steps for a film gaining a vocabulary of its own independent from live theater. However, live theater was still definitely a heavy influence on how movies were made and perceived. And yeah, Metropolis in particular has a lot of operatic undercurrents to its visuals. Mm -hmm. When you're talking about the music, there have been dozens of scores for this film. The first official one was composed by Gottfried Huppertz. He uh, played piano on set while the actors were performing, and when the film premiered and in you know its initial showings, a live orchestra played while the film was going on. Uh, some people uh, believe that silent films were silent in their days, and they never were. Sometimes they had live orchestras playing specifically written scores. More often than not, it was just a lone piano player who was just playing along to the film, usually improvising. Sometimes a shadow cast would perform the film live in front of it, kind of like the Rocky Horror Picture Show with uh, Midnight Screenings. <laughs> this would be a really cool one to do. You know, have someone come out of a robot costume and be like, hey. I, I, I mean, I bet it's happened. Uh, yeah, the score itself was not officially recorded until 2001, and it's been used in most subsequent restorations of the film. The one that we watched is the controversial Giorgio Moroder 1984 version. So why did you pick this version? Like, I have I have a copy of uh, Metropolis in a horror anthology box set. And I wonder what version that is. You probably have a public domain version of the uh, 1936 cut. There is a more fuller restoration on YouTube somewhere. I picked the Giorgio Moroder one because I think it's accessible to newcomers. And also it's lying around the apartment. And that's a very good reason. And I think it, it picked it really well at first. When I like came into the living room to watch the movie, I like heard the soundtrack playing on the DVD menu. And I'm like... Is this the 80s? Like, what's going on? <laughs> okay, for those of you who aren't familiar, uh, Giorgio Moroder is a pioneering figure in uh, Italian disco. He is best known for his collaborations with Donna Summer. Uh, most of her big hits were co-written and produced by Moroder. After disco faded out, he got into film scoring. He did the original version of Battlestar Galactica. He did Cat People. He, uh, he scored Scarface. His biggest hit was probably Flashdance. I think that, you know, it's kind of, I think, strange watching a movie from 1926 with 80s music, but... It does me, feel anachronistic. You know, it added to the experience. It felt like an experience more than just watching a movie, and I liked it. Yeah, uh, Marauder, he was very passionate uh, about Metropolis. It's one of his favorite films. He was very sick of the balderized versions that were floating around with the uh, bizarre edits and nonsensical bits, which I will be talking about more. Yeah, I want to know what was edited out. I mean, well, censored out of this. He and David Bowie got into a bidding war over the film's rights, and Marauder won. That is how much money Marauder was making in the early 80s. How much he was willing to spend on it. <laughs> Going up against V. David Bowie. Yeah, he restored the film alongside the Munich Film Archive, and he made a lot of decisions that rubbed people the wrong way. A lot of the inner titles were replaced with subtitles, which some people believe was just a terrible idea. I think it was less distracting than having them constantly be intertitles. Yeah, he also decided that the individual scenes would be colorized. Now, this was not an uncommon thing to do in the silent era. The idea was that the colors of the film, dyeing the film itself, would give a sort of thematic weight to certain scenes, which, as you said before, you know, the bit with the heart machine turning into the temple of the sacrificial canonite god, everything suddenly turned red, and that had an effect on you. 
Yeah, and also like the worker scenes are like, you know, drab and blue, and then you go up to the tippy top, it's you know sepia, making it look very, you know, classic. But, you know, movies continue to do this. I mean, plenty of films will continue to tint the screen, maybe not so obviously, but enough to notice. Yeah, tinting the screen kind of went out the way when sound was introduced to the film because it interfered with the soundtrack. But yeah, throughout the 20s, very common thing to do. However, the Marauder edit was very poorly received. A lot of people thought it was awful to put this very 80s music onto this 1920s film. It was like sacrilege. Uh, Marauder said that he did not destroy the purity of Metropolis because there is no pure version of Metropolis anymore. I, I can get behind that. And work of art is old enough. It belongs to the world and you can remix it however you want. I often think it's super cool to go to YouTube or fan sites and see people do like homemade scores to uh, German silent films. Or, you know, things are constantly being, you know, recreated and updated. Like uh, a while ago, somebody recreated the fight scene in Star Wars between Obi-Wan and Darth Vader in A New Hope instead of it being, you know, old men awkwardly poke each other with glowing light sticks. They make it, you know, a cool, epic battle. And, like, for a recreation, they do a very good job. Like, you know, it doesn't quite have that, you know, age 70s look to it, but they have the sets. They hide their Obi-Wan actor's face well enough that, you know, you can't tell that it's not Alec Guinness. And then they edit it into some scenes from the original Star Wars, and it looks good. Yeah, the, the soundtrack is very Marauder 80s. It features him calling in a lot of favors from his rock star friends. Yeah, Freddie Mercury's in this. <laughs> yeah, Freddie Mercury does a song for it. Uh, Billy Squire does one. Adam Ant, Loverboy, John Anderson of Yes. This is very, very 80s. <laughs> I know, right? Uh, the Jojo Marauder cut of Metropolis got two Golden Raspberry uh, nominations. What? Why? It got one for Worst Score. And it got a, a nomination for Worst Original Song for the Freddie Mercury one. Ooh, did it, did it win them? No, it didn't win either. Oh, right. Like... It did get a Grammy nomination as well oh, for, okay. uh, <laughs> for Bonnie Tyler's rendition of Here She Comes. All right. The Marauder soundtrack has grown on some people. In particular, fans seem to be fond of the Pat Benatar song, Here's My Heart, which is used for the love scenes. It made them more tolerable. How's that? <laughs> I think the song is very uh, saccharine, but I wouldn't say it's completely insincere. It's on the nose. Bop, right on the nose. Yeah, uh, there is also an alternate ending to this film, which I tracked down. In in instead of Frieder becoming the heart that arbitrates between the, the, the mind and the hand, he decides to leave Earth and explore outer space. Possibly a metaphor for him abandoning his father's legacy of cruelty and finding his own stake in the world. It's an interesting looking ending. I've seen the stills, but it, it makes more sense, you know, narratively to go with what they did. Yeah, I mean, well, uh, the whole idea of like working class must work with bourgeoisie. Well, we'll be talking <laughs> yeah. about that when we get into the film perception. I, I know that, but I think the idea of him just being like, I must return to my home planet, blasting off into space, does not work thematically at all. I agree. I think it would be very like, out of left field and in not an entertaining way. However, elements of the alternate ending were used in Lang's follow-up film in 1929, Woman on the Moon. Did the woman blast off of Earth to go and explore the world and she lives on the moon? It's not a sequel to Metropolis. <laughs> Anyways, uh... <laughs> Reception of the film, it got high praise for its visuals, which this I mean, in the part when, it first came when out. it first came out, I mean, it looks awesome now, but it blew people away when they first saw it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, audiences for the first screenings just spontaneously broke out into applause whenever one of the film's more impressive set pieces came about. Aw, I love that. <laughs> it got mixed reviews as a whole. A lot of people saw it as overlong and convoluted because films from this period were simply not at this length. The initial cut of the film is 210 minutes. Yeah, that's very long. Yeah, it's more than twice as long as the version you, you saw. What even happens in the rest of it? Well, you notice that uh, the film says that Maria overpowers Rotwang and escapes and never actually shows that. Does she have a fight? Yeah, yeah, she gets, she gets an action scene. Oh, nice. Good for her. A lot of people saw the themes as maudlin and overly reductive. Also fair. 
I mean, you know, it's a little heavy-handed, but it's, I guess, a good message, mostly. H.G. Wells, which, as I said earlier, was an inspiration for the film's plot, hated the movie. He wrote a review that criticized it for foolishness, cliche, platitude, and muddlement about mechanical progress and progress in general. He felt that it was silly to imply that automation would make drudgery more common rather than less so. But yeah, 21st century hasn't exactly proven him right there. Uh, Yeah, one person who absolutely loved the film was Joseph Goebbels. That was Lang's reaction. Yeah, I mean, he was Jewish, wasn't he? Yes, he was. <laughs> Anyways, uh, Goebbels, this is 1927, so the Nazis were still posturing themselves with socialist language. He talked about how the film gave a perfect metaphor for how the workers of the world will unite with entrepreneurs and innovators to throw off the decadent bourgeoisie. Notice how he mentioned the entrepreneurs. You mean Nazis, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, the, the, the fascists. Oh, jeez. Yeah, according to Lang, he was approached by Goebbels to uh, head UFA once uh, Hitler was appointed chancellor. Did he just forget that he was Jewish? Or were they going to give him, like, a, I don't know, you're okay card? That was something that, uh, that Lang worried about, which we'll be talking about when we get to what Fritz Lang was up to after Metropolis. All right. Let's go back into the uh, censorship of the film. The first American release of the film was cut mostly for length. Movie theaters did not want to show a 210-minute long movie. They had a hard time thinking of how they were going to make a profit if they weren't going to get, you know, as many showings in a day, which is still a concern that plagues movie theaters to the, not to this current day because of the pandemic, but, you know, still before that. I miss going to the movies. Yeah, let's hope that there will be movie theaters after this is over, because I've been reading stories that imply otherwise. Oh, boy. There was another American re-release that cut the film to uh, remove subversive context. Uh, Actually, that wasn't their principal concern. Weird. They were worried about the Marxist underpinnings of the film, because this is during yeah. the... Yeah, this is in the midst of, uh, right after the first Red Scare. The American edit of the film made the workers the primary antagonists of the film, depicting them as lazy, entitled, and greedy. Oh boy, them commies will show them our film edits! <laughs> yeah, also, the American uh, re-edit removed all religious iconography from the film. This so, is pretty much all Maria's scene. So anything with crucifixes or the seven deadly sins or the Tower of Babel... What about the, you know, the star? The pentagram? The, the pentagram was kept in. That's dumb. Yeah. <laughs> also, remember the Frieder's dead mother? Her name is Hell. They removed all mention of her from the film because her name is Hell. It's not even spelled the same way. Yeah, but it, it was too close. Anyways, that removed all mo- character motivations for Friederson and Rotwing, so they're just running around doing things just because in this version. <laughs> Wow, that sounds really bad. Fritz Lang was unsurprisingly repulsed by this edit. He refused to even watch it. Yeah, I would say no way. <laughs> and the film just kept getting cut apart by various people. Once it was finally archived by the British Museum of Modern Art in uh, 1936, it was only 91 minutes long. And for decades, this was the only version that people could see. You know, because of this, people didn't really know it for its story, which at that point was completely incoherent. It was mostly the visuals that kept it alive. So were whole sections of this lost to time? Yes, a great deal of it. Uh, Several scenes were found after Metropolis was eventually reappraised as a classic. It was a financial disaster when it came out. I mean, some people liked it, but it was just too expensive. It was impossible for it to make its money back. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, however, uh, after the uh, Marauder edit, which is a coherent story, you were able to follow it. Yeah, it made sense. Yeah, a uh, almost complete version of the film was discovered in a film archive in Argentina in 2008. Did Nazis take it? Possibly. <laughs> I'm sorry, because you said Argentina. Yeah, it was... <laughs> Yeah, Argentina and recovered German film just, yeah, the, the, the lead you to wonder. Okay, you know, it was low-hanging fruit, but if I didn't grab this low-hanging fruit, I would regret it. Now, this version of, of the film, with a re-recorded version of the original score by uh, Gottfried uh, Huppertz, was re-released in 2010. 
and 95% of the footage was recovered. Several of the scenes were too degraded to be properly restored. Uh, they were replaced with inner titles explaining what was going on. You know, for one thing, there was an interaction between Maria and a monk, which, yeah, is not in the Marota version at all. It was thought, one of the many things thought to be completely lost. Why was that important to the story? Yeah, it, it fleshes out the character a little bit. Okay. I will encourage people who like the shorter versions of Metropolis to seek out the almost complete version. Uh, it is a bit of a slog if you're not familiar with silent film, but I'd imagine you'll be okay with it, Rachel, yeah, because would... you sat through Birth of a Nation. Yeah, I did. You didn't have to write a paper on it. Alright, let's talk about the cast now. First off, there's Alfred Ale, who is Joff Friederson, the principal bad guy. And Gustav Froelich is Frieder. You know, they're both fine. They're, yeah. both, they're both doing that um, that silent film, hammy overacting thing. You know, the pantomime and the exaggerated expressions. Although, the most exaggerated expressions is when the robot is doing her little sexy can-can. <laughs> and businessmen in their top hats and tails are just, like, squiggling their eyes at her. Yeah, they're like, we're gonna fight each other over who gets to fuck the robot because they don't know it's a robot and now to the performances that actually have some meat on them rudolph klein as rotwang he's just this archetypical mad scientist with the beethoven hair and in every one of the film is chewing scenery but oh boy is he doing it Oh, he lost his hand. He sacrificed his hand to build the robot. Well, that is not clear in the version I watched. Yes, like I said, the full version is more than twice as long as the version yeah, you watch. Yeah, all right. Yep. And some people have speculated over the meaning of that of that hand and talking about all the various film characters who have lost their hands. Luke Skywalker, Ash and Evil Dead, Doctor Strangelove, so on and so forth. And the person that we all want to talk about, Bridget Helm, as both Maria and the robot. Yeah, she's great. Yeah, she. she would, I could tell that she was, you know, he's hopefully having a good time as the robot. Like, she's all twitchy, she's got heavy eye makeup, she's ah, snarling, dancing, she's got, ooh, I'm here to save the workers. Yeah, her crazy eyes are just... Yeah. Just the demented ways that she looks at Frieder as he's trying to call her the robot and the workers are not believing him. You know what? Oh, I was going to say, the robot, like the robot itself, those are some scary eyes. Those little, like, pinprick pupils. I have read a couple of interviews with Helm uh, that she did in the 60s and 70s after the film was being reappraised. She did not have a good time. She, she thought that, uh, that that Lang was sadistic through the retakes after retakes after retakes. Not only did the robots who injure her, but the scene where she's being burned at the stake. They, uh, they accomplished this with the special effects technique of actually burning her at the stake. Hey, that motherfucker! Yeah, she caught on fire. Aw, damn it. Too many iconic performances in movies. I've been wrought by being cool to actresses. <clears throat> Shelley Duvall. Okay, I want the actors out of the way. Now it's time to talk about the themes, which this film is not subtle about. Oh, yeah, so many themes. First off, there's the Marxism, which there's no way to say that this film doesn't have Marxist sub, uh, subtext. I am genuinely confused that Nazis embraced this film. Well, they didn't think they were the baddies. <laughs> I guess so. I mean, they he... thought they were the mediators. Yeah, and let's talk about that little pat, cutesy ending where Frieder becomes the heart between the hand and the head. Well, you heard me when we were watching it, like the format. I was calling him a scab. He was narking on his fellow workers. At least for me, and like my perspective watching it, is that sure, they might have, you know, upset the system a little bit at the end, but they didn't overthrow it. Yeah, uh, Lang said that while he was making Metropolis, he was very naive politically. And looking back on the film, he thought it was very silly. He denounced the um, uh, the ending as a fairy tale, which, you know, fair point. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it does have sort of a fairy tale quality to it. That being said, uh, some people have speculated that his later dismissal of Metropolis ties a lot into how Goebbels lionized it. Yeah, if I had a big-name fan who was a fucking Nazi, I would be really upset, too. And we'll also be talking about his disintegration when, uh, with his relationship with his wife after Metropolis, and that also probably played into his perception of the film. Nazi? 
Oh, spoilers, but yes. Or at least a fellow traveler. Uh, yeah, another thing that comes up in the film, is, as I discussed before, is the occult imagery and the religious symbolism, which is an odd parallel to the uh, Art Deco and the Futurism. I'm not sure what the meaning of it is, because I haven't tracked down like an English translation of the source novel, which, as I mentioned before, is apparently much more supernatural. Like, there are ghosts. Does an English translation exist? I'm not sure. There must be. Probably should be. Tying into the Marxism and the occultism... The film just spotlights the dehumanizing aspects of not only neoliberalism, but also industrialized society, treating people like replaceable cogs in a machine, which is evidenced not only in what is said in the intertitles, but all of those workers who are just sort of shifting back and forth rhythmically along with the chugging pistons and that whole scene with uh, Frieder substituting the worker and he's just moving the little levers around the light bulbs and you're not even sure what that's even supposed to do. Other than it looks like absolute agony to do for 10 hours straight. And like one worker collapses, another scene he's just replaced with somebody else. There's dragging people off the stretcher. Time to time to move this other worker ant back into its place. It's probably the aspect of the film that feels just as relevant now as it did back in the day. Eh, I agree. The thing that ties it all together is expressionism, which I want to talk about expressionism in more detail eventually when I do an episode on the uh, cabinet of Dr. Caligari. But in broad, general, probably oversimplifying terms, expressionism as an art movement was mostly about depicting the world not as it is, but rather as it makes you feel. Uh, it came about based on the works of Vincent van Gogh, but also Karl Marx and Sigmund Freud. The idea of photography had just overtaken uh, fine art, and the Impressionists paved the way by saying that the purpose isn't necessarily to depict actual reality, but to give off impressions uh, of how we see the world. And Expressionism was one of the movements, along with Fauvism and otherwise, that, that, that took it a step further. In film, this is often used to uh, have deliberate exaggeration to throw the viewer off balance and provide a visual cue for a character's psychological underpinnings. In film noir, there's a lot of smoke rising out of the heating grate in the background, and it's way more smoke than would ever appear in real life, but it generates an atmosphere. You know, when the bad guy is giving his evil plot, he's often backlit, and that's a little too convenient, but it does give you an idea. And you, the viewer, just accept that that's how it is. Yeah, it's a, it's the heightened reality. And in the modern day, even in superhero movies, there's sort of an approach to naturalism. Uh, not so many people are doing the heightened reality thing outside of, like, horror movies. But German expressionism is fucking rad. I want to see more, you know, over-the-top movies outside of horror. And not only that, but the exaggeration does lend itself to the hammy silent film acting. So... We're going to talk about what happened to Fritz Lang later. Yeah, but uh, first thing we talk about the film's legacy. Oh, yes, of course. It happened right away despite the film's financial failure. There was an American film in 1930 called Just Imagine that was a view of the futuristic world of the 1980s. And (laughs) yeah, it it had people, you know, flying around in uh, little airplanes and shuttle tubes, just like the backgrounds in Metropolis. It was very, very obviously swiped. This sort of thing also comes up in modern times, the Charlie Chaplin comedy, which is also about losing uh, our sense of humanity as we become uh, replaceable cogs in a machine. And he used a lot of the same type of visual effects with the uh, chugging gears and pistons and the like. In particular, this set the the tone for a lot of science fiction films, especially in the visual front. Uh, Metropolis is possibly the first science fiction film to treat the genre as a serious thing rather than as like a Melies fantasy joke. Mm -hmm. C-3PO in Star Wars is very clearly based on the robot in this film. Yeah, except he's, you know, a very anxious robot instead of a, you know... And I believe Anthony Daniels had at least a slightly easier time in that suit. Yeah, he's, uh, I'm just wiggling back and forth because I forget this is a podcast and no one can see us. <laughs> yeah, a lot of the background imagery in Star Wars, particularly in the prequels, seems to be lifted directly out of Metropolis. Yeah, especially Coruscant. During um, Attack of the Clones, like down in the lower levels, I remember watching the behind the scenes thing where they said that on lower levels of Coruscant, it's always night because the towers are so high. I think the most famous film that uh, draws from Metropolis and that is probably Blade Runner. Oh, yeah. I could see Blade Runner all over this movie. Yes, yeah, the idea of the masses just 
filthy and overdeveloped, toiling underneath while all the rich people uh, live in like heavenly towers over them. And there's a sexy robot lady. There is a sexy <laughs> robot lady. Some people like to connect uh, Metropolis to the James Whale uh, Frankenstein films. You know, um, as I said before, Metropolis based a lot of its work on, on Mary Shelley. The robot is clearly a Frankenstein analog. Mm-hmm. But uh, Rotwing's uh, laboratory has a lot of parallels to uh, Henry Frankenstein's and those James Whale uh, universal horror films. And universal horror films borrow a lot from German expressionism in general, often hiring expatriate uh, Germans who fled the Nazis to work on the films. That, you know, the killer robot pretending to be human. Uh, A lot of people connect that with Terminator. Unsurprisingly, Tim Burton is a big Fritz Lang fan. You don't say! Yeah, and the uh, Art Deco backgrounds in uh, his Batman movies have a lot of similarities to Metropolis. Even at the end of the first Batman movie, you know, Batman and Joker have a scuffle on top of a cathedral. Yeah, and, you know, even to kind of reference another German Expressionist movie that got borrowed by Tim Burton and Batman, just look at Dr. Caligari and then look at Danny DeVito's Penguin. They could be brothers. Not only that, but um, Christopher Walken's bad guy in Batman Returns is named Max Shrek. Oh, yeah, I get Okay, also, I haven't watched Batman Returns in a very long time. The last time I fell asleep during the ending. <laughs> Uh, yeah, Metropolis was also turned into a stage musical. I could not find any footage of it on YouTube. I was looking pretty hard because that sounds interesting. Yeah, I, I, I would agree. One thing uh, if the, that uh, anime fans are probably familiar with is that Osama Suzuka created a ma- manga version of uh, Metropolis in 1949. He saw a single uh, still from the movie and just wrote a story around it. And it is from the perspective of, of the robot girl. Okay. Yeah, and it's just about her trying to find a, a sense of self and a, a sense of soul in the in, in the city and being driven mad by it. It is often seen as a prototype for uh, for Astro Boy, but it also has uh, certain parallels to uh, Akira. Yeah, yeah. But see, that's what I expected the Metropolis we just watched to be about. Yeah, uh, the the manga was adapted into a 2001 anime film that picked up more thematic elements from the Fritz Lang Metropolis. It all comes together. <laughs> okay, and now it's time to talk about Fritz Lang's career post-Metropolis. The rise of Nazism was concerning to Lang because of his Jewish uh, heritage. However, apparently Goebbels, just enraptured by Metropolis, uh, wanted uh, Lang to head Ufa. However, the only person who could confirm that was Lang himself, so who knows? I mean, would you really want a lot? Who would make up a story But yeah, this Nazi guy I hate offered me a job. I believe him. Thea von Harbaugh, who was Lang's uh, wife, she was sympathetic to the Nazi cause. Nah. Yeah, and their marriage was already on the rocks anyways. As soon as Lang had a reputation in German artistic circles, he used that to pursue young, uh, younger women. Nah. And von Harbaugh uh, used her position to pursue younger men. Apparently they hit the skids when uh, Lang caught her in bed with a man who was 17 years younger than her. But how old was she when that happened? Because... Like, 17 years younger, like, if she's 50, eh, not bad, but if she's, like, 35, then it's, uh. I, I believe he was a teenager. Ah, shame on her. Yeah, uh, anyways, uh, one of Lang's later films, The uh, Testament of Dr. Mabuse, was banned by the Nazis, because, I, I don't know if you're familiar with the Dr. Mabuse character. Um, very limited knowledge of it. Uh, he's a supervillain, very much in the Professor Moriarty Fu Manchu mold. Yeah, he appears in Moriarty Hound of the Ubervilles by Kim Newman as Moriarty's real arch nemesis. He's basically a Moriarty knockoff. In uh, this film, uh, Mabuse is a dangerous lunatic who spouts dialogue very similar to Hitler's speeches. <laughs> This was not lost on Goebbels. He he clocked it right away. Uh, as soon as Hitler was appointed chancellor, uh, Lang fled Germany. He first stopped in Paris, and he made a film there, but he eventually came to the conclusion that Paris wasn't any safer than Berlin for him. So he then moved to Hollywood, where he spent the next 20 years of his life making American films. These aren't quite as acclaimed as his German work. However, it was very influential on film noir, particularly 1945 Scarlet Street. 
eventually disillusioned by the Hollywood studio system. He moved back to Germany in 1959 when he was much older, and he made a couple more uh, films, his last being 1960's The Thousand Eyes of Dr. Mabuse, which was his third, third film with the character. This was one of his more successful efforts and spawned six sequels, which are directed by other people. He retired from filmmaking in 1960 and died in 1975. Yeah, and he also appears in the Full Metal Alchemist movie Conqueror of Shambhala. That's how I heard about Fritz Lang from anime. Yeah, I <laughs> I saw the uh, Osama Suzuka adaptation of Metropolis before I saw the proper Fritz Lang one, so yeah, anime was my gateway as well. Yeah, I don't know. I, all in all, I really enjoyed it. I definitely want to watch more, you know, silent films, and I'm you know generally interested in the history of you know lost media, you know what happens to it, and sometimes it's found like. I think a few years ago they found a ton of lost Doctor Who episodes. Um, there's also uh, gosh, Shadows Over London, which is probably the most famous lost horror film where they only have a couple stills of it left. Yeah, yeah as we mentioned before uh, in an earlier episode, about 80% of all films made before 1928 are completely lost. However, we still find footage from time to time. The Thomas Edison produced version of Frankenstein was, re was restored and nobody expected that to be found. Yeah, I know that um, because one of my friends is a huge Doctor Who fan, if you find any of the Lost Who episodes, you get a large Dalek for yourself. Neat. Yeah, just find all sorts of cool stuff. I really like to definitely want to watch more, you know, silent films. I've seen, you know, bits and pieces here and there. I've taken some film classes. Uh, you and I have gone to see, you know, the Berkeley Orchestra come and perform um, live orchestras for different silent films. You yeah, know, we did Phantom of the Opera and we did some Lois Weber. Uh, yeah, Potemkin. Yeah. Oh, yeah, and Potemkin. Well, as well. Like, Lois Weber was like the, the opening. Mm -hmm. I mean, usually I try to close these things by um, asking, you know, wh wh what the appeal of this film is and why do you think it's, you know, an, an important and cherished piece of cinematic history. But I think the answer on that one is pretty obvious. It's the visual aesthetic, uh, all of the unprecedented aspects uh, that, that were shattered in this film. Yeah, it's like it's not remembered for the plot. <laughs> no, it's not. I mean, even with the coherent story, it's it's a heightened fairy tale. Yeah, it's like I wasn't paying attention for the story. I was like, ooh, it's so pretty. Oh, look at that set. Mm, the robot. That's awesome. <laughs> okay, on that note, uh, that covers everything I wanted to talk about. I, I don't know if, uh, if there's anything that we haven't uh, we haven't come around to that you wanted to bring up. Uh, I was going to say, because we talked about them this episode, Fuck Nazis! Yeah, yeah, fuck Nazis. The end. Good yeah, night, everybody. Yeah, bye! <laughs>